You're listening to an adult Sunday school class at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. My favorite questions in the Shorter Catechism. Uh, I'm thankful that I had the opportunity to teach on it because this is the transition. We've looked at the scriptures, we've looked at God, we've considered his decrees, creation, providence, man, the fall, and now the catechism transitions into the whole idea of redemption. So it's a great opportunity for us to begin looking at what God has done for those whom he saves. So the question is, did God leave all mankind to perish in the estate of sin and misery? And the answer given is that God, having out of his mere good pleasure from all eternity elected some to everlasting life, did enter into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of the estate of sin and misery and to bring them into an estate of salvation by a redeemer. It's a great question. Well, it's a great question and a better answer, I should say. So what the question assumes is the already stated doctrines of the divine decrees and eternal election. We've looked at that, and you can see the phrases in this answer that refers back to that. Is this, is this echoing for you? Yeah, let me just return it down once. Is that better? Yeah, kind of reverberation. So it does assume these already stated doctrines and the salvation to which this question points was decreed out of God's sovereign good pleasure. And that is an incredible statement that there was absolutely nothing, and that's unqualified, there was nothing in us or done by us that would draw the attention or the affection of God. You know, the psalmist, I think it's in Psalm 8, why would you consider man? <laughs> so, so seemingly insignificant, like a speck in the universe. But God did take interest in us, and for no other reason than his sovereign good pleasure. He saved you and I through Jesus Christ simply because, and for no other reason than, it pleased him to do so. It was in his mind and heart from all eternity. That purpose never changed, never had a beginning. The Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. And if even if we stopped right there and just considered that particular truth for the rest of the Sunday school, it would be absolutely staggering. He takes pleasure in us. And you can think of that perhaps in his creatures, creating man in his image. He would take pleasure in that which bears his image. But fallen man, rebels, guilty, corrupt, unrighteous sinners, he takes pleasure in his people. When the angels fell, God left them in that state of sin and misery without any hope of salvation. They only had one chance. No other opportunity. God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. 
So they had no opportunity. The angels that did fall, that were changed, they were immediately cast into darkness. Now, they've been given some freedom to assault and tempt mankind, but they are under judgment, and there is no possibility of their repentance, period. When man joined with the devil in a conspiracy against God, and of course, that's what it was, he planned to extend grace to some from the very beginning. He knew what was going to happen. So the question starts out, and it assumes these doctrines, and it does tell us that even from all eternity, because it pleased God, he elected some. Any questions on that? Any thoughts? Okay. You can see why this is one of my favorite questions, answers. So following man's fall, God declared his gracious purpose to save. In Genesis 3.15, we have the first public declaration of the covenant of grace. God said, as he was judging the devil, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And there we have the first publication of the gospel. It points forward to the champion of the women's seed, woman's seed, the Lord Jesus, that he would come in the fullness of time. He would crush the head of the serpent, and yet he himself would be bruised. He would suffer. Now, of course, this enmity between the seed of the devil and the seed of the woman is divinely inserted. It does refer to regeneration. Because the only way that we would have enmity against the devil and his purpose would be to have a changed heart. So when God says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, he is telling us that he's going to regenerate his people. That's the only explanation. Otherwise, all of us would be in league with the devil. There would be no enmity with the devil. There would be no enmity between those who follow the woman's example and trusting in the promise of God and those who follow the example of the devil. So there is that first indication of the regenerative work of the Spirit and the redemptive work of the Son. It's all encapsulated in Genesis 3.15. So it's like this kernel, this, uh, this acorn, that the whole gospel is contained in Genesis 3.15, and over the next millennia, it's going to be unfolded. The acorn grows into this massive tree that we see all the implications and the connections of the gospel. He revealed his plan for the incarnate son to redeem all the elect. And this was, in Genesis 3.15, the historical expression in history of the eternal covenant that existed between the father and the son. Now you say, well, how do you know that? Well, for example, Hebrews 13, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will. So there's just one example specifically of this eternal covenant. There are some who would disagree with me, and they would say, well, it's eternal Going forward, Genesis 3.15 never stops. 
But if I understand the concept of eternity, I'm trying to, with my finite mind, understand eternity, there's no beginning. There's no end. It's not just forward, it's backward. Eternal covenant means eternal. So I think here we have a a wonderful nugget that tells us about this covenant between the Father and the Son. Some theologians call it the covenant of redemption, which then finds historical expression in the covenant of grace. They're one and the same. I don't want to confuse you. You can call the eternal covenant the covenant of grace. You can call it the covenant of redemption in eternity and the covenant of grace in history, but they're one and the same. God chooses us. He saves us through Christ. He regenerates us by the Spirit. He glorifies us in heaven. So this has been called the covenant of redemption. In this covenant between the Father and the Son, the Son promised to become a man, to fulfill the law to perfection, and to satisfy divine justice at the cross. And the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Somebody's got to die. Justice demands that because of sin, somebody's got to die. The son said he would do it. He stepped forward, and he would be the mediator. My food, he says, is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Does that not assume or imply a mission a previous plan, an agreement. The Father sent me, I'm willing, He sent, and He has a work for me to accomplish. So there is this idea of a covenantal mission. I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me on a mission. So there we have the Son promising in this covenant, this eternal covenant, to be incarnate, to obey the law, and to die on the cross. The Father in this covenant promised to reward him with a great name, Philippians 2, a name which is above every name, and a people whom no one could number. They'll be yours. He tells the Son in Psalm 2, Ask of me, and I'll make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. That word, ask, We typically think of somebody coming before the authority and and asking, hoping. No, that's plead with me. Plead your case. You have every right to this people because of your blood, because of the merit of your obedience on earth. So it's basically saying, you can come before me as the risen and exalted son and plead your merit before me and I'll give you your people. Any questions on this covenant, the eternal covenant? It's an amazing thing to consider. Right, right. That's a good question, Melissa. The spirit, where does he come into play? Well, everything is done Trinitarian. Uh, in a Trinitarian way. So even the covenant itself is Trinitarian. We focus on the Son and the Father simply because when Jesus discusses um, his purpose, he's always talking about how the Father sent me, and it's this mission. So yes, the Spirit is absolutely involved in that covenant of redemption. The Spirit agreed to come and to glorify the Son. 
Remember, Jesus said, when he comes, he'll glorify me. That's the Spirit's job. His job on earth is to glorify Christ. That's why this whole focus in our day and age on the Spirit and his gifts is so misplaced. The Spirit's not happy. Yes, he's at work. Yes, he gives gifts. But his focus is on the Son. And that's what we should be doing. Um, He promises to come and to regenerate God's people, to give us the gift of faith, to trust in Christ. So that's assumed and implied in this covenant of redemption. Great question. But remember, everything God does is Trinitarian. When, When Jesus rose from the dead, there are some texts which tell us the Father raised him from the dead. There are other texts which tell us Jesus, by his own power, raised himself from the dead. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to raise it up. And there are some texts which tell us the Spirit raised him, Romans 1. So this idea that the scriptures will emphasize one person in a particular work is biblical. But we know that every work that takes place is Trinitarian. And if we're not Trinitarian, we're not Christian. We have to be Trinitarian. That's the whole idea behind baptism, right? You're baptized. You're brought into the visible communion. Triune name. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You are obliged to obey Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If you don't walk with the Spirit, you're not a Christian. No matter what you say. Any other questions on the covenant of redemption? or John? Paul just trips over himself again and again talking about God's pleasure in redeeming his people. He, he just said, it, it's, it, it's, it's, it's kind of shocking and, and repetitive to hear him say it again and again how this was just God's pleasure and design doing it. Right. And it's, I don't know, that, that, that's comforting. I, I, <laughs> Absolutely, yes. Very much so. It also kind of is, you can see echoes of that, and even, even non redeemed people kind of wanting redemption. We all, we're all wanting to have the pleasure of, of forgiving or, or restoring or making you even in broken, brokenness. And so it, that, that, I, don't, I don't know if that's an echo of, of God's desire to well, he's put eternity in man's heart, so there is this yearning for something eternal in all of us, right? The problem is fallen man tries to satisfy that yearning with the creature, with creaturely things. And only the believer in Christ, who's been regenerate, can satisfy that with communion with God. Um, Yeah, yeah, the love of God's been shed abroad in our hearts, right? So that's the love of God for us and the love of God for others. It kind of fills us up and overflows to others. We have the mind of Christ. We have the heart of the Spirit. Absolutely. We want others to come to Christ. We want to share this with others. It's like a, you go on a hike 
to a high mountain. And you get to the top of the mountain and you're by yourself. And you get there and you look out over the valley and this vista, this beautiful vista. And what do you think? You want to share it with somebody. I mean, you're by yourself. It's fantastic. But you're like, oh, there's nobody there to say, look at this. We want to do it together. We want to praise the Lord together. That's why corporate worship is so important. One of the reasons. We want to do it together. I love hearing the voices. Even Mark's. <laughs> and I mean that. I do mean that. God's purpose of grace and love toward us never had a beginning. That's, that's beyond a finite mind to comprehend. It never had a beginning. He's had your name written, or at least it's, um, in his mind, from eternity. And that's comforting. He's loved us from everlasting to everlasting. It never changes. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. The love is the spring and the fountain of all salvation, of God's fidelity to his people. Um, God is unchanging, an immutable God. And if he's an immutable God, well, then his love has to be immutable. It has never changed. And it's been there forever. And no reason, again, can be assigned to this other than his free, immutable, and sovereign good pleasure. That joy and privilege to which he chose the elect was eternal life in his blessed presence. That was his purpose from all eternity. So this is simply the outworking of his purpose in history. Your coming to faith in your life was this incredible uh, conversion whether it was gradually in a covenant family or as an adult or whatever. But that was, from all eternity, his purpose. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. <clears throat> so there we have God's sovereign purpose. The incarnate Son is not the formal cause of election, but the meritorious cause of salvation. Now, why would I say that? Well, because some people think that the Son has to somehow persuade the Father to love us. That he's angry with us, he's mad at us for sinning. And it's only when the Son comes and dies and rises and goes up to heaven and persuades the Father to love them that we are saved. Nothing could be further from the truth. The formal cause of election is not Jesus, it's the love of the Father himself. The Father himself loves you because you've loved me and have believed that I've come from God. That's not causal. We love him. We have belief in him because the Spirit has been given to create that within us because the Father loves us. So the Father himself loves you. And that's the source and the fountain of our election. His love for us. In his sovereign decree, God chose the elect in Christ, who is the head of all the members. He is the redeemer by whom God brings all the elect into an estate of salvation, according to question 20. He's the redeemer. He's the only redeemer. There is nobody else who's fit for that work, who was appointed to that work. I don't care what any other cult might tell you. Jesus is the only redeemer. And justice was satisfied, and the ransom for your soul and mine was paid by nothing less 
than the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And that blood is precious. So, any questions on this part? Great answer, isn't it? Mary Alice? Addressing this word eternal, and you spoke before that you feel eternity is one of the better descriptions of double problems that right. Lord was back. Now, coupling that with this promise of eternal life, life means that I have self awareness. Okay, if I don't know I exist, then that's got a good point. So, Jesus came to promise us eternal life. Comment on how that life goes not only forward, but backward. In Christ, right? So we have life in Christ. Our head and representative is eternal. So in him, we don't experience it that way, but in Christ, it is eternal. Even now, and Mark has often mentioned this, um, you know, we are seated with him in the heavenly places. So virtually, we are in heaven already. You can say in a sense, now history is important, don't get me wrong, and in our experience it's vitally important, but we can say in one sense that we have been with Christ or in Christ from eternity. Yeah. Yeah. Captain Pastor Ray, it's so difficult for us to think about that because we think in light of the application of that to us by His Holy Spirit. Right. So John mentioned Ephesians and... Ephesians chapter 1, we see that the Holy Spirit is a down payment. You know, when we buy a house, we have to put earnest money down that will guarantee that we will fulfill our promise. God does the same thing with our salvation. He gave us the gift of the Holy Spirit, which serves as that earnest right. money that it's as good as done. And you've said that so many times. Right. That when he's when he says it, it as as if it already is taking place, right. just not in our time and space. That's right. Well said. It's as if it's already complete. I mean, if, if God says something, it's as if it's as good as done. And this is one of the reasons why all the Old Testament saints were saved by Christ yet to come. Well, how could, how could David be saved? It was before the cross. Well, so certain is the death of Jesus, even in the Old Testament, that those saints are saved by his forthcoming sacrifice. Yeah. And it's hard for us to even think that David was saved by a regenerated heart by the work of the Holy Spirit. Yes, absolutely. Well, we thought the Holy Spirit didn't show up at Pentecost, but no, he was there hovering over the waters. That's right. He was at work all throughout the Old Testament, regenerating believers. No believer in the Old Testament could believe without regeneration. The difference is of one of uh, degree, not one of kind, so that when Jesus said, well, the Holy Spirit has not yet been given, well, the point is he's not been given in such profuseness upon the whole church um, that would come at Pentecost. That, That was a watershed event. Nothing had happened in the history of the world like that, <clears throat> where Jesus Christ, the risen representative of the church, pours out the spirit of Christ. He's the spirit of Christ, and Christ is the head of the church. So it's so profuse, so efficacious, so international, all people, 
that it's almost as if it's nothing before compared to what, was, what is now. We live in a very privileged age, covenantally. We live in such a privileged age. With the law's requirements fulfilled and justice's demands satisfied, Jesus has the right and the title as Redeemer to deliver us from slavery. You have given him authority over all flesh, he said, to give eternal life to all whom you've given him. So, um, as the divine creditor, you know what a creditor is, someone to whom you owe a debt, the divine creditor to whom we became debtors, God had a right to demand a price. We have a debt, and that debt needs to be paid. Somebody's got to pay it. So the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Pay the debt. Now for generations, I don't know how many years, I never did a study on it, but in the Middle Ages, they thought the debt was satisfied when Jesus paid the devil. That he paid the ransom to Satan to deliver us from his power. That was an accepted doctrine for a long time. But the devil is merely the jailer and has no right to detain prisoners after the creditor is satisfied. God uses the devil at his pleasure. He uses all of the angels, both good and bad, for his purposes. And the devil is merely the jailer, keeps us in prison. Jesus paid no price to Satan, but exercised his sovereign power to free his captives. And this is what Jesus was discussing when he said, when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. So the strong man comes to deliver us from the other strong man. The stronger man is Christ. Theologians, therefore, say that God entered into a covenantal agreement to deliver us by price and power. Jesus pays the ransom to the Father and uses his power to deliver the captives. By price and power, Jesus delivers his people, all according to the covenant of grace. Marvelous. You've said, I've made a covenant with my chosen one. This is God speaking. I have sworn to David, my servant. And by David there, you, hopefully you know that he is referring to Jesus with his ancestral name, the son of David. I've made a covenant with my chosen one. I've sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. He's talking about Christ. And by price and power, Jesus came and he delivered the captives and he saved the elect. That's salvation. Has nothing to do with us. <laughs> Has everything to do with him. That's one of the reasons why we can be rejoice, even when we've had a rough week. We've struggled with sin time and time again. We've seen how weak we are, lack of watchfulness, lack of faithfulness. And yet we know that's difficult and our conscience accuses us, rightfully so. But we know that our salvation is secure because God has done it through Christ. Don? You said that Jesus paid the ransom to the Father. I don't quite understand. Okay, good. Good question. Uh, the ransom to the Father, because God had said, in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Right? That's the, 
the special command that he gave to Adam. Okay, well, there's the stipulation. You obey, you'll have life. You disobey, you die. Well, he disobeyed. And so death is the wages of sin. Justice demands it. <clears throat> and in, under justice's captivity, we can't, get, we can't escape the wrath and curse of God unless that's satisfied, unless the debt is paid. So somebody has to pay the debt of death. Physical, spiritual, eternal death. That's what we owe. Not just dying of the body. I mean, that's terrible, but it's not the worst part of it. So Jesus on the cross paid the debt. Physical, he died. His body died. Spiritual and eternal, Father turned his back. Does that make sense? Well, my question was just, how do you pay the debt to the Father? I understand paying the debt. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. I think just the fact that justice is satisfied. Yeah. Sorry, I elaborated far too much. <laughs> you don't have to pay for that one. <laughs> Dock it for my pay. Any questions on, on this part? Okay. Well, the covenant of grace is so-called because it's a covenant of eternal life and salvations to sinner, salvation to sinners is given according to free grace. But those blessings, let's remember, they were earned by the obedience of our Redeemer. So it's a covenant of grace to you and me, not to Jesus. For him as the second Adam, this was a covenant of works. To quote my previous professor, Dr. Meredith Klein, heaven must be earned. We didn't earn it, but he did. He obeyed the law, he suffered, and he died. He earned heaven. He humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, Philippians 2. And that therefore is so significant. It's only because he did that that he could be exalted. And as our covenant head, we're exalted with him. So heaven is earned. By hum his human nature was holy, his human life was perfect, and his sacrificial deaths atoned for sin. The first Adam, as our head, failed in his obedience, so the second Adam had to fulfill the obligations. Somebody not only had to die, but somebody had to fulfill the obligations. We owed God personal, perfect, perpetual obedience. We're created for that. In the post-fall world, justice demands that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So you and I could never be forgiven without the precious shed blood of Jesus. He obeyed perfectly. He died sacrificially so that you and I could be forgiven, accepted, and inherit eternal life. That's the covenant of grace. For everybody who's chosen in him, the covenant blessings come as an expression of divine grace. He's earned it. He's in heaven. Now it's for you and I to enjoy. It's gracious. Nothing you have to do. It's finished. God was willing to accept that satisfaction from Christ. We don't think about that too much, but he could have demanded that of you and I, like the angels. I'm not going to let anybody pay this but you. 
So he was willing to accept that satisfaction from Christ. That's number one. That's gracious. Number two, he not only was willing to accept it from Christ, but he provided Christ freely as a redeemer and the only mediator between God and man. So is there a question? The two? Oh, the, the second Adam? Two. No, T-O, to the Father. Oh, to the Father. Yeah. Well, there's only two options. He's trying to get the Trinity wrapped around that ball. Yeah, if you have three and one, how, do you pay, how does one pay the other? Well, I think you might think of it as anthropological language, anthropomorphic language, they call it. It's, it's God trying to teach us that there was a debt that somebody had to pay. So the man Christ pays the Trinity. Does that help? Yeah, I think. But I get, I get what you're saying. It is difficult. You're right. I mean, we focus on the son paying the father. But yeah, you're right. It's a Trinitarian thing. So let's not forget that the humanity, the human nature of Christ gave a satisfaction to the entire Trinity. Good point. Yeah, I'm glad you kept that. Julia? It also seems like these, this language is being used to show us something about what's going on. Like to try to ascribe roles to the, to the Godhead. It helps us understand something of the mystery that's going on, but not very much of it. So it's like we can only go so far with it. Right. We're just stuck in our humanity. We can't understand beyond that. Yeah, and, and you're right. I mean, we, we have a very difficult time. God, as Calvin would say, is lisping to us, like you're talking to a baby. Um, but I think it is biblical, and that's, that's what's helpful. We don't have to feel bad about using this kind of language because the Bible's comfortable using it, right? Just to recognize that God is infinite and he is mysterious. So, But he was willing to accept it from Christ. He freely provided Christ. That's gracious. And... He requires faith as the condition, so he promises and gives his Holy Spirit to work in us that faith. That's gracious. So there is absolutely nothing that we have to do. God does it all. It's gracious. It's a covenant of grace to you and me. Jesus, he had to work. He had to obey. He had to die. He earned it. Us, grace. It's all of grace. By grace, you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Our salvation is a gift. Freely given, freely received through Jesus Christ, the only mediator between God and men. Any questions, John? I was thinking about the earlier thought that I had. And I think I was misspeaking. The, it appears that when, when people see they either want to, they either end up sacrificing and don't have Christ. They either end up either sacrificing sin. Well, there is no, there really is no sin, unless just call everything okay. Or they end up sacrificing righteousness, and then just say, we'll just let just punish everybody and just start killing all those that are on the wrong side. Or if they try to reconcile both, they find they don't have the power to, and then they either try to make up the power or 
and even the like the 1800s, 1900s, trying to have Christianity without Christ. You end up trying to kind of create a, a fixing of the world without actually God as true God. And all of these things end up just leading to despair. Right. That's exactly right. We've seen that in history, haven't we? Um, unless we have the gospel, it does lead to all kinds of things, the broad road to destruction. Narrow is the path that leads to life. And by narrow, I think it means the gospel and the only gospel. So, yeah, good point. The ancient ratification rite for covenant making was sacrifice. We're told in Jeremiah 34, for example, the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and passed between its parts. So there we have a description from God himself of the way that ancient covenants were ratified. Take an animal, you cut it in half, you lay it apart, and then you walk between it. The parties of the covenant walk between the animal as if saying, if this covenant is broken, may this happen to me. That's the covenant ratification right. Jeremiah 34, 18 refers to that. That's why in our Old Testament, <clears throat> throughout the Old Testament, our translations will say God made a covenant. Literally, it's God cut a covenant time and time again. God cut a covenant. So the covenant of grace was made with Christ and it was considered to be a covenant by sacrifice. Gather to me, my faithful ones, who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. This was vividly foreshadowed by means of the covenant ratification ceremony with Abraham. You remember that in Genesis 3.15? No, Genesis 15, sorry. God said to Abraham, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Abraham, meanwhile, is fast, fast asleep over to the side. He didn't walk through them. So God was signifying by that ratification, right, that the covenant, if it's broken, he would suffer what the sacrifices symbolized. Well, God's not going to break the covenant. We know that. He's perfectly faithful. But Abraham's a sinner. He broke the covenant. The very moment he woke up, he had a sinful thought. He broke the covenant. And so God said, if this covenant is broken, I'll suffer. Abraham didn't walk through there. He didn't say, if the covenant's broken, it'll happen to me. So when God told Abraham, he who blesses you, I'll bless, and he who curses you, I'll curse. When Abraham sinned, God has to curse him. If God curses him, he has to curse himself. Because he said, he who curses you, I'll curse. Jesus died on the cross under the curse of God in fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, which is a cov the covenant of grace. That may have confused you. If it did, I'm sorry. 
For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Covenant by sacrifice. It's ratified in the blood of Jesus. Any questions on that? I wouldn't be surprised if there are, but... Julia? Yes. Okay. That's why Genesis 15 is so unique. Right. God only does it. Right. Okay. So if either one of them break the covenant, God's going to be the one to suffer. And that points us to Jesus. Uh, works are involved in both first and second covenant. The first covenant works were the condition for eternal life. You remember? The day you eat of it, you shall surely die. In the second covenant, the covenant of grace, good works are the signs of eternal life. James, you're not saved by faith, but faith and works, because in the sight of man, your faith, your works evidence true faith. That's what he's talking about. So in the covenant of works with Adam, that was the condition. He had to obey to earn heaven. In the covenant of grace, the works show that we're true believers. Matthew 25. The day of judgment. You visited those in prison. You clothed the naked. You fed the hungry. That was evidence that you are one of mine. So in the former, the works are the ground. In the latter, they are the evidence. The only condition for us in the covenant of grace is faith, which, as we've said, is a gift. It's it's finished. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, that's granted to you, belief, but also suffer for his sake. So believing and suffering go together in the Christian life, and they're both gifts. And we can look at our suffering as a gift. Because without that trial, without that suffering, you would not go to heaven. I have to say that. God is infinitely wise. He has foreordained everything. Everything is used for your good. Every trial is for your good. And without that one trial that you dislike the most, God wouldn't be bringing you to heaven. He's using that to bring you to heaven. This is the way of salvation. Through many tribulations, we enter the kingdom of God. So we have to look at our trials And it's easy for me to stand up here and say this, I know. But we have to look at our trials as God sent, God ordained, used by God as a heavenly father to train us, to prepare us, to move us along on the way to heaven. Every trial. As we've said, there is no such thing as a tragedy for the Christian. No such thing. For the unbeliever, Everything's a tragedy. The best job, the best spouse, healthy children, a nice home, those are tragedies for the unbeliever because they simply aggravate his guilt. So this removes all possibility of our boasting because the righteousness is received from Christ. And as the condition of the covenant of grace, faith humbles us. We can't do anything. And the sinner... Uh, humbles and the sinner is humble. I don't know what what I'm talking about. And glorifies the Lord. So, 
It humbles the sinner and glorifies the Lord. That should have been a the, I think. But that's why faith is so amazing, because it removes all boasting. And this covenant is better than any other covenant before in history. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You're a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Best covenant. Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better. Better promises. Any questions on that? Any comments? Hopefully you can see why this question and answer are one of the best ones in the shorter category. They're all good, but this is an incredible one. The transition into redemption. The covenant of grace. John? Um, the Hebrews especially talk about old covenant and new covenant. And the old covenant was still the same covenant. But I... Can you clarify how, why is using the specific language of old covenant, of old covenant and new covenant, better covenants and worse covenant, even though it's, it, it is one covenant? Right. Yeah, great question. <clears throat> when he ca- talks about the old covenant, he's talking about the Mosaic administration. We understand that that's part and parcel of the covenant of grace. All of those who believed under the old cov- Mosaic covenant were saved in the covenant of grace. Now, this is going to throw you for a loop, but that covenant also had a typological level. It wasn't just the personal salvation on this lower level, but on a higher level, typologically, Israel as a nation looked forward to Christ, the second Adam, and looked back to Adam, the first Adam. And typologically, the nation, it was a covenant of works. So, the nation obeys, they stay in the land. The nation disobeys, they're exiled. What does that remind you of? Adam obeys, stays in Eden. Adam disobeys, he's exiled. So, typologically, this old covenant had this principle of works running throughout it. But personally, believers were saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, having kept you a minute over, that's probably not something to leave you with without further explanation, but I guess we'll have to do that. But it's a great question. (laughs) We could spend a whole Sunday school on that. All right, sorry. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the covenant of grace. We thank you that you've entered into this solemn commitment, which you will keep to save your people through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and all of its finished. And we're grateful for the Holy Spirit who dwells in our hearts, who's given us this gift of faith to trust in the Savior. Please prepare us now for worship because you are worthy. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.